0: Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. See, all this seems bleak,
1: doesn't it? But this is not the end of the story. One of the themes in the book of Esther is summed up really well by a pastor named John Bloom when he writes this, the real story is often not what is most visible. Let me say that again. The real story is often not what is most visible.
0: Sometimes in our lives, we can feel as though we're inside a blender, being swirled around in a million directions. It's often difficult to see what the point to events or circumstances in our lives are. The Israelites that were in exile in the book of Esther may have felt similarly. Where is God in all of this? We've lost everything. As Pastor Ricky will be teaching, what we see is often not the full extent of what's actually happening in our lives. God is working behind the scenes on our behalf. Now let's join Pastor Ricky for part one of his message, When God is Nowhere to be Found.
1: Well, let's open up God's Word this morning. I'm excited about this. We're starting a new series. We're going to be in the book of Esther. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some available on the back table to your left. Feel free to jump up and grab one of those. That's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. The series is called The God of Chance. Now, I was a skeptical child. I don't know if you have known a child like this, or were a child like this, but I did not just believe things that people told me. They would tell me things about science, and I would say, well, how do you know? Anybody have a child like that? But why does it work that way? The earth is orbiting around the sun, and then you'd say, but why? Well, you know, because of gravity and things like that, but but why? Right? Anybody have a child like that, that just will not be okay with, look, it's gravity, all right? It just works that way, and there's a big thing, and we, we're flying around it, all right? I was one of those kids. I grew up in the church, though, and so I brought some of that skepticism to the church. One of the things I was skeptical about as a child was everyone always telling me that God is everywhere, but also we can't see him. I didn't think the people were telling me the truth. I thought, okay, this is not real, Either it's somewhere and we can see it, or it's nowhere and we can't see it, okay? But you're telling me God is everywhere, but we can't see him. So I was a skeptical child. That probably brought some concern to my parents who were leaders in the church. And I've had this conversation with several kids over the years, and now it's finally turned and come back around to me where I was praying with Ford recently, our four-and-a-half-year-old praying with Ford. And as we prayed, he asked me the question, but why can't we see God? I said, well, buddy, we can't see God. God is invisible. But then where is He? Well, He's everywhere. <laughs> but then why can't we see Him? And I thought, oh no, <laughs> it's come full circle. Now we could laugh about that with kids, but I think all of us have similar questions at times. So there are times in our lives where it's easy to believe in God and to in a sense see God at work in the world around us. We love promises like Romans 8:28 that God causes all things to work together for those for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And we say yes and amen when we get that job we've been praying for. We say yes and amen when we have a child that's born healthy. We say yes and amen when we ask for someone to be healed of sickness, and it seems that they are. And we say amen, God causes all things to work together for good. And yet, things don't always work out that way. Sometimes you lose that job. Sometimes your marriage is shaken up. Sometimes the child is born sick. Sometimes in life, nothing seems to make sense. And sometimes we look around and the truth that God's everywhere and he's good doesn't seem to line up with our lives because we take our circumstances and we say, well, where is God here? I can't see him anywhere in here. Well, today we're starting a series on that broad question. Where is God when we can't see him? Our series is called The God of Chance because the book of Esther, well, the book of Esther really is about the Jewish festival of Purim, which literally means the festival of lots or in our modern vernacular, it would be like the festival of dice or the festival of chance. That's a funny title, but it's going after that question. Where is God when it seems like our lives are just driven back and forth by chance events around us, by the roll of the dice in all of the thing around us? And one of the unique things about the book of Esther is that the entire book never mentions God. No one prays to God. God never intervenes or acts or speaks in the story In fact, it's concerned some Christians over the years who thought maybe it's a mistake that this has ended up in our Bibles. No mention of God at all. In fact, he seems totally absent from the events on our first reading. But we see that really it's revealing this deep question, where is God when we can't see him? The context of the book is that the book is set during a very difficult time in the Jewish people's history. This is long after the glory days of David and King Solomon and a bad series of kings and the kingdom choosing sin and sin, sin over and over against serving and obeying God results in God's discipline of the nation. It means that God allows these other nations to come and take over and destroy all of God's people and land and God's people are taken away into Babylon. And then Babylon is itself defeated by Persia. And so now God's people have a new master in the Persian kings. And this once mighty and proud people, the the people of Israel, to whom all the nations came under the rule of Solomon, they've become this small, weak people group among dozens of other people groups in the Persian empire. Now, Some of the Jewish people have received, by this time, permission to go back to their homeland and try to rebuild. And that story is told in the book of Ezra in your Bible. So you can read the other half of the story there. But many Jews simply stayed where they were in the Persian Empire. And their day-to-day life would be that they would live under the proclamations of a pagan king, walking by people worshiping pagan gods, simply trying to survive another day, another week, another year. And they would have been asking this question, where is God when we can't see him? Today, we're just going to introduce the background of the book with this introductory story. But I think we're going to see that there is already an answer to this question. We're going to cover our text this morning in two sections. The first section is what we see. What we see is that the king of Persia reigns. First section, what we see. Let's begin chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Esther. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign... He gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed... The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both small and great, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. What we see here right at the beginning of the story is that this king reigns and reigns absolutely over the kingdom of Persia. First, we see the extent of his rule. Now, the king's name here is Ahasuerus, but most people know him today by another name, the great king Xerxes, who is perhaps most famous for repeatedly trying to invade Greece. If you grew up with this story in school or something, he is the bad guy in the story of the 300 brave Spartans who take on the entire Persian Empire because they're defending this narrow mountain pass, right? This is the guy with unlimited resources, an endless army. This is not a small king, a small petty tyrant of a backwater nation. Now, this is the king in the ancient world at this time. And he's likely just 35 at the time this story begins, and he's recorded as being the tallest and most handsome of all the Persian kings. And the introduction shows us the extent of his rule. His rule extends from the Middle East into North Africa and all the way into India, and as a display of his greatness, the author opens the story with a party. But not just any party. It's a party where everyone who is anyone is there. All the rulers, all the noble people, all the celebrities are there. All the reporters are there taking pictures, people uploading Instagram portraits and Snapchatting each other and social media is blowing up and this is going on for six Months. I mean, this is akin to the Oscars and the presidential inauguration and the Super Bowl all being rolled into one. Look, there's Tom Brady. Look, there's the governor of Texas. Look, there's these movie stars, right? This is the kind of party this is. And what's the purpose of this party? The purpose is, listen to this, this text is great, showing the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. It's a party for him, thrown by him, about him. That's the point of the party. We get more of the details of this seven day party. So not only does he throw a six month party for all of the famous people and celebrities and military rulers, he ends it by inviting the entire city, anybody who's rich or poor, doesn't matter. The whole city gets to come to this party. He spares no expense. Every luxury of the ancient world is there. Maybe this description threw you off. Now, these are just the luxuries of the ancient world. One thing that we can understand, which is crazy, is that even the couches were made of gold. Now, that is a party, right? The cups were made of gold, right? So you're drinking the best wine in the kingdom, from a gold cup sitting on a gold couch, you have arrived. This is how utterly lavish this king is. What he's saying to the nation is that my resources are unlimited. My power is absolute. And all this was meant to both inspire love of all the people and terror. Love in the sense that he's giving all these generous gifts and he wants people to remember him fondly when they're loading up on the boats to go over to Greece and get mowed down by the Spartans, right? That's his plan. He wants everyone to love him. The army's there, right? He wants these guys in a good mood. We're gonna invade a country. All right, right? Now, it doesn't immediately strike you as a great idea, but after six months of heavy drinking, it seems like a great idea. This is King Xerxes. For us as Americans, though, this is a bit of a difficulty in the text. How can we relate to God's people under the rule of this absolute monarch in the ancient world? Well, in their situation, the king had all the power and the people had none of the power. But we each find situations in our lives where other things in our life have all the power and we have none of the power. We have, despite our freedom, which we trumpet, we have no control over the world around us, the geopolitical events in many senses. We have no control over the economy. We thought we did in 2007, and then 2008 happened, and we realized, okay, we actually don't have control of the economy because it took everybody a long time to figure out what even happened and why everyone lost their retirement and why people were jumping out of buildings. We don't know what's happening the rest of this year. Our retirement could be wiped out or the economy could boom. We have no control over our jobs. We could get promoted or demoted or fired or moved or transferred. We have no control in many senses over our health. Our annual physical could go well or something strange could happen in your blood work that changes your life. We feel very in control in the first world, sitting in America. But there is so much there is outside our control. We are rightly seen, we are as powerless as the Israelites under the reign of this King Xerxes. And notice, yet again, in this beginning, that God is nowhere to be seen. That's the extent of Xerxes' rule. But second, look at the character of his rule. What kind of ruler was Xerxes'? Well, we get a small but very telling glimpse of who he is. Read with me in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bidza, Harbana, Bigtha, ab, 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 Abigtha, uh, Zethar, and Carcass, who's my favorite, old carcass, the seven eunuchs <laughs> who served in the presence of King Hashuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. What kind of king was King Xerxes? Well, first we see that in the party before and in this story, we see that the king is consumed with his own glory. He's consumed with his own glory, but not the good of his people. He's fine with a lavish party being thrown in his honor, no matter what the expense would be to the nation. And as we'll soon see, he's willing to sacrifice others for his own glory and preservation. Second, we see that the king is easily swayed, which is one of the themes in the book of Esther. He's going to be swayed throughout this whole book far too easily. He's ultimately swayed because he's ultimately thinking about himself. Now here he's swayed by being drunk or at least tipsy. It turns him to call for the queen. So he's drinking heavily and then he calls for the queen. And and then after this, he asks his buddies what he should do to the queen and then he does it. He's constantly asking the advice of other people and if it seems good to him, he will do it. He's easily swayed. Third, we see that the king is given to fleshly Desires. Now, why does he call in the queen? Well, one commentary I read it was said that it was probably something like the way that the British treat the royal monarch, the queen, and so the troops are being assembled. They're about to go out to battle, and sort of the queen kind of comes out and kind of waves, and everyone says huzzah, and then like mans the guns, and everything's like very inspirational, patriotic. I don't think that that's what's happening here. King Xerxes, we know, had his heart merry with wine. Remembers his queen is lovely to look at, is drinking heavily with a bunch of his friends, and has a great idea to bring the queen out so that everyone can look at her. She is his trophy wife. And he wants to display the trophy to a bunch of his friends who have been drinking heavily. This is a man driven by fleshly desires. And fourth, as we'll soon see, he is vindictive. When she refuses, the author says twice, he became enraged and his anger burned within him. He is utterly furious. He has no self-control. This is the king that can be swayed this way one moment, this way the next moment. Meaning all people under his rule better beware. And where does this leave God's people? It leaves them utterly exposed. See, these two facts together are terrifying. That first, Xerxes has ultimate rule over everything. And second, he seems fickle at best and evil at worst. In light of this, God's people are utterly exposed. One of the commentators, Karen Jobes, writes, The Jews have no king, no army, no prophet, no land, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices. They are a small defenseless minority living at the mercy of a ruthless and powerful pagan monarchy. They can only expect the worst. See, all this seems bleak, doesn't it? But this is not the end of the story. One of the themes in the book of Esther is summed up really well by a pastor named John Bloom when he writes this, the real story is often not what is most visible. Let me say that again. The real story is often not what is most visible. See, King Xerxes seems like the real story, but the real story lies behind. Section number two is what we do not see. What we do see is the king. What we do not see is that the Lord reigns. I love the book of Esther because it is so good and so subtle at times. It is a literary masterpiece. See, the author manages to both introduce the immense wealth and power of King Xerxes and illustrate how petty and limited he is. One of the things that this story does, it invites us to compare this king to the true king, this king to God himself. Over and over, it makes us laugh at King Xerxes. He is this powerful, ultimate, ancient ruler. He's in the middle of a council of his closest friends and advisors and generals, and he is ordering things all evening, right? He's saying, bring me this, do this, we're going to invade like this, you're going to do this, and then it strikes his fancy, bring me the queen, and she says, no, no. And so this man, hopped up on testosterone with all of his buddies and generals, is made to look like an idiot by his own wife who won't come when he calls her. He is commanding thousands of troops, not his own household. You think that in that moment when the unfortunate task of delivering this news was given to the king, people weren't snorting in their drinks? When the advisor sheepishly announces that the queen, she, she says, yeah, she says what? She says that she, she, won't, she won't come. She won't what? She won't, she won't, she she says she's indisposed. (laughs) Right? Everyone is afraid of Xerxes, but now they're also laughing at him. And and what's funny is he rounds up his advisors like it's a code red national emergency. We're not going to read that whole section of the text, which I encourage you to do this week, but essentially all of his buddies start realizing, listen, listen, if the king's wife won't listen to him, why will our wives listen to us? This is like a national emergency. And so they form a council and they list the advisors and say, what are we going to do about this? What if the wives go on strike? Has anybody ever thought about that? Hope in God, oh my soul.
0: Listening today to Pastor Ricky Alcantar's series, God of Chance. If you've been encouraged by what you heard today on Better News Radio, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 915 562 7100 and also let us know how we can be praying for you. That phone number again is 915 562 7100. Or you can email us at radio at betternewsradio.com. You're also invited to visit our website, betternewsradio.com. There you can listen to today's message again or peruse our archive of previous teachings by Pastor Ricky. Subscribe to our podcast as well to receive the latest messages as soon as they're available. While you're at our website, be sure to check out Pastor Ron's introduction video telling you about the gospel message and why it's vital for the world today. Pastor Ricky has also created a book that's available for free that shares some incredible better news for life. In it, Pastor Ricky shares his own story and answers questions that many have about what living as a Christian truly means. Download the Better News book for free and share with your friends and family. You'll find it at betternewsradio.com. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. We pray that you'll continue to look for God's hand in your life every day and rely on Him to guide your steps with love and grace. Know that we're praying for you frequently. Thanks for tuning in today, and be sure to join us again for more from God's Word right here on Better News Radio.